how to sing songs of praise. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The height of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Please be seated. You pray over us, please. Bow with me for prayer. Father, as the words of this psalm remind us this morning, you are great and mighty. Above all things, there is no God apart from you. You are a great king above all gods. In your hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. There is none like you. And we want to be not a people you loathe, but a people that you long for, that you guide us as the great shepherd in the way that we should go. Because we, like sheep, are prone to stray. We thank you, Father, that your loving kindness toward us is great and your mercies are new every morning because I know for certain that I need them new every morning. We thank you, Lord God, that your wrath is always tempered by your mercy and your grace, and it is your mercy and grace that shelters us from your just wrath. I thank you, Lord God, that you have offered to us the great joy of confessing our sins and forsaking them, and through the blood and cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Knowing that we are accepted not because of anything we have done, but because of the finished and complete work of Christ. I thank you, Lord God, and we as a people thank you that that mercy and grace has been given to us. And we ask, Lord God, that those among us who do not yet know that mercy and grace that you call them to yourself, that you, Lord God, enlighten their eyes and their hearts to the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is salvation for all who call upon his name, that there is no sin too great, no depth too deep, where your grace and mercy do not reach. Father, we ask this morning, that you help us to worship, for we need your help to worship well. I thank you for this time with the brothers and sisters in Christ, that we as the Church of Christ can gather together and care for each other and learn of you and worship you. May you be honored and glorified by everything that is said and done this day. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we have a video to watch leading us into baptism.
I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. No turning back, no turning back. Can you hear me? There we go. <laughs> this morning it is a privilege and a joy to be able to invite our brother Adam to the waters of baptism. Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says these words. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is one of the two ordinances that we celebrate as a church. And baptism is a public profession of faith. Baptism is not something that saves you. It is merely a proclamation of a work that has already happened. Uh, we use baptism as a way to publicly pronounce that we have decided to follow Jesus. Because he loved us first, we now publicly proclaim him. And so we do not believe that this is salvation. This is merely a representation of being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Adam here is 20 years old, and he, when, when he was younger, uh, professed faith and was baptized uh, in his younger years. Uh, the rest of his life showed him that he was a false convert. And over the last few years, the Lord has been drawing him. He has been coming to EBC for a number of months, and he believes that it was in December that he finally was granted the true gift of repentance and new birth. He is now born again, and as such, he has asked that he would be baptized before all of you to proclaim that reality. And so this morning, we celebrate that with him, that he has decided to follow Christ, that he is now a believer and he does this in obedience to his Lord. And so, Adam, a few questions for you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is God incarnate, truly God and truly man? 
And Adam, do you believe that Christ was killed? That he died and was buried and that on the third day, in accordance to the scriptures, he was raised for your forgiveness, for the forgiveness of your sins. And Adam, are you now trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for your future hope? Then, Adam, my brother, it is my privilege to now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism unto death, raised to walk in newness of life. Worship our Lord together. Well, as I told Adam earlier, and as I've said earlier today, what a great day. Today is a great day. Um, when we were planning the service, we had a different set of songs. We had a different idea of the way things would go. Um, but I think after talking with John, I think now is the perfect time for us to be able to sing, I have and praise you in song. For you are the mighty God. You are our gracious God. You are worthy of all of our worship. Bless this time as we bow before you, Lord. You are eternal, the awesome creator. We are your creation, the people in your care, and, and we love you. Father, forgive us our sins, for we are but humanity and weak, and we go astray. But our greatest hope is that we may enter into your rest. We pray your blessing on this time with you. Amen. What a joyful and wonderful morning this has been already so far. <clears throat> thank you to those who assisted in preparing for the baptism this morning. And thank you to the worship team uh, for your hard work in preparing to lead us uh, week in and week out. And for uh, your openness to uh, me throwing curveballs uh, right at the end. Uh, so thank you for that. We are currently in a series titled, Who is God? And so far we have seen some uh, foundational truths about God. God is ase, meaning self-existing and self-sufficient. He is eternal and therefore infinite and immutable. And he is a spiritual being. And therefore he is simple and not complex in the sense that he is not made of parts. He is simply God. And for the next two messages, I want us to consider one of the greatest revelations of God uh, about his own nature to man. That being that God is a singular God in being, but triune in personhood. Or more doctrinally stated, Within the one being that is God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons. This is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. And before we get started, let me just make a few comments. First of all, if you don't completely understand this doctrine, welcome to the club. 
And what I mean by that is that there is a level of complexity to this truth. But the complexity comes from the fact that small, finite minds are trying to understand the infinite and eternal. Right? We are not called to come to a full, all-encompassing and comprehensive understanding of this truth. It's literally impossible for us to do so because we are not God. So there is a level of mystery here, and that is okay. Certain things belong to God alone because he is God and we are not. And so it is okay. And so we are not called to understand this truth in that sense, but we are called to believe it and to be able to articulate it and defend it as it is found within the pages of Scripture. And so what we are called to understand is what has been revealed. And I believe that this is where we most fail as Christians in our doctrine of God. We are quick to affirm that God is three in one, that Jesus is God, that the Spirit is God, that the Father is God, and yet there is only one God and not three gods. We affirm that truth, but how many of us can articulate why we believe that? And I even wonder how many Christians in general, and even in this room right now, might even be scared of this doctrine. Because as it rolls off your tongue, it sounds irrational, like it contradicts logic. How can one be three and one? in the same relationship and at the same time. And so we give quick mental assent to it, but are almost worried, perhaps, to dive into the truth of it out of fear that maybe we might come out on the other side denying it. And I say that from experience. As a former atheist coming to the faith and hearing there is only one God, but he, singular, is three persons, I had a moment of struggle with it myself. So I wonder if there are any of you here today who could identify with that. And so here's my goal for the next two sermons, because this one doctrine of the Trinity is so extensive that it could be a series of sermons by itself. My current goal is simply to give you the framework for it. I want to set before you the scriptural case for why we believe what we believe. Because here's another thing. Here is why this matters. If you're familiar with the term theological triage, it is a tool that we use to determine a scale of theological urgency and priority to, to doctrines. First level doctrines are those that we deem as necessary elements to the Christian faith. To deny a first level doctrine is to deny the Christian faith. And the doctrine of the Trinity is one such doctrine. It is a first-level doctrine. It is a doctrine that if denied, it puts someone outside of the Christian faith. Now, let me give a quick clarification there as well. I'm not saying that someone has to have a fully worked-out theology of the Trinity in order to be saved. That is not what I'm saying. And so I do also believe that there are those who are saved and do not affirm the Trinity yet for whatever reason. So someone can be saved and be in theological error because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is error nonetheless to deny this doctrine. And any doctrine that contradicts the triune nature of the one God is heresy. And so let me, let me just warn you ahead of time as well. Because I really hope to communicate my heart to you here. This morning I will be making some seemingly harsh and strong statements. Like calling whole, uh, whole groups of people heretics, 
and what I hope that you will give me the benefit of the doubt in regards in regards to that is that I'm not saying these things for the sake of being mean or for the sake of stirring up your emotions or for the sake of sounding like, hey, I've done my studies, look at how smart I am, or for the sake of or love of or desire for debate and battle. None of those things are my purpose. And I tell you that with a completely honest and clear conscience. Everything I say this morning is out of a love for truth. A love for you and my desire to equip you. For me to know that I have done what I can to make sure that you have the tools that you need to recognize error and discern false teaching. And a desire to see false teachers and those who are captive under false teaching to come to the truth. And so that is my sincere heart behind everything that I will say this morning. <clears throat> Back to what I was saying. A denial of the doctrine of the Trinity is heresy. And so we do not extend the hand of fellowship to any group that dogmatically denies these truths, meaning we cannot affirm that they are in the Christian faith. And so Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, also known as the Church of Latter-day Saints, Oneist Pentecostals, are all heretical groups that are, that are outside of the Christian faith because all of those deny the doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine is a gospel issue. And that is why we should extend the hand of a loving neighbor to them. We can't extend the hand of Christian fellowship, but we should be extending the hand that loves them as image bearers and delivers to them the true gospel of our Lord. And beloved, putting such theological differences aside for the sake of being nice is not loving. The best way we can love people who are potentially or are certainly on a path that leads to destruction is by telling them the truth. By us being faithful to the truth. Pointing them in the direction that leads to life. And so we must be grounded to the truth. And so that is my purpose this morning. So let's see why we hold to this doctrine and should be willing to die on this hill. And I will plainly tell you, this is a hill that I am readily willing to die on. So turn in your copy of God's Word with me to the Gospel according to Matthew in the 28th chapter. Matthew chapter 28, and that's page 992. In your pew Bible, and if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that Bible as our gift to you. And there are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take. And there's also an information card there that you can fill out and slip into the offering box. We would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. Matthew chapter 28, and I want to read from verses 16 through 20. But our exposition will only focus on a small portion within those verses. So let's begin by reading our text, starting in verse 16, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word, which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the, of the Apostle Matthew, reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray.
Father, again, what a joy it has been to us, a congregation, as a body of believers who have experienced the renewal of your power, Lord, that we were able to celebrate a baptism. Lord, a baptism that has been made true, that the work that has been done in our brother is true because this doctrine is true. God, that you are three persons in one being. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this doctrine, that you would help us to love this doctrine. And, Father, I believe that that is what understanding this truth should do. Lord, as we get such a marvelous revelation of your being, it just brings us to our knees in awe. And we are thankful that we stand here 2,000 years after Christ confessing and professing the truths that were proclaimed in this very text 2,000 years ago. And so, Father, may our worship, the rest of our worship this morning, be honoring and glorifying to you. And would you now bless the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit in the name of your son. Amen. Well, the church father Tertullian, also known as the father of Latin Christianity, was a prolific author and defender of the faith in his time. He lived in the years 155 to 240 in Carthage, which was one of the most affluent cities in the classical world, at this time being a major province of the Roman Empire. And during his time, a man by the name of Praxis was teaching that there was only one God and only one person in the Godhead, and that God took on different modes of being. The Father being one mode, the Son being another, and the Spirit being the third mode of the one person that is God. In opposition to that teaching, Tertullian wrote a book titled Against Praxis. And in it, he writes this insightful truth regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Quote, this rule of faith, that being the doctrine of the Trinity, has come down to us from the beginning of the gospel, even before any of the older heretics, much before praxis. Close quote. In that statement, Tertullian makes the profound observation that the doctrine of the Trinity had been handed down to believers from the beginning of the gospel. And any doctrine that denies its truths was at that time already considered heresy. And Tertullian is writing less than a hundred years after the apostles, and about a hundred years before the council of Nicaea, and about 200 years before the council of Chalcedon, two very important councils that helped to further bring out these truths of scripture regarding certain aspects of this doctrine. Now, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. You will not find the statement three persons in one God in the Bible. But the truths that solidify the veracity of this doctrine are woven in the very fabric of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. We see the same in the very commission that our Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. The great commission itself is grounded in the reality that within the one being of God there exists Three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. So I want us to consider these truths in three headings. So notice our first heading, three persons. Three persons. In this great commission issued by our Lord, we zoom in to magnify the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity contained therein. And the first foundation of this doctrine that I want you to notice here is that there are three persons. 
And notice that we are to baptize converts in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Greek, you have the conjunction and followed by the definite article the or of the to clearly mark out the distinction of each of these persons. And another thing to note, as far as I know, all of the Greek manuscripts that we have that contain this portion of Scripture are all in agreement with the structure of the sentence, with those conjunctions followed by the definite articles. There is no textual variance that I know of in the manuscript evidence when it comes to this verse. And that's important to know because it gives us confidence that this is exactly how our Lord gave this commission. And it very clearly distinguishes between the persons in the Trinity. And so we don't read in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? As if you could combine the three in such a way that you could say, see, it's not three persons, persons it's one name and one person that takes on three modes because you don't have separate definite articles for each one. But that's exactly what we have. It is unavoidable. And that, by the way, is a heresy called modalism, where God is seen as one God and one person who takes on different modes. Modalism. But again, Jesus was very careful in the way that he said these words and in the way that they were recorded for us in the Greek language by the providence of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. And the rest of the scriptures are clear in their ascribing of personhood to all three of them. And not just personhood, but distinct from one another personhood. And I wanted to bring uh, just a few examples uh, of those to your attention. In reference to the Father and the Son, the fact that Jesus, a person, prays to the Father who is another person, shows that they are two persons. John 17, in verses 23 to 24, in his high priestly prayer, <clears throat> our Lord prays these words directed at the Father, quote, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we clearly see a distinction in personhood. And let me just mention, when Jesus says things like, I and the Father are one, or if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, Jesus is not teaching modalism. He is speaking in different categories. He isn't saying that he and the Father are the same person. Again, that wouldn't even make sense. Why would he pray to himself but act like he's praying to someone else? Why does he say that the Father loves him and he loves the Father if that's just him saying he loves himself? Some others, for example, John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And so when he says, I and the Father are one, he is speaking in a different category. He is saying they are one in mission and even that they are one in deity in some cases, not in personhood. So it is very clear and very easy to understand that the Father is a person he is not the Son. The Son is a person, and He is not the Father. They are two distinct persons. Well, what about the Spirit? I think some of us tend to forget that the Spirit is a person. And we think of Him perhaps more as a nebulous power or something. Maybe that's because He's called the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. But remember, God is spirit. The Father, therefore, is just as spirit in essence as the Holy Spirit is. 
And so it's a misleading thought, for example, that we have when we think of the Father as an old man with gray hair and an epic beard and the Holy Spirit as being some ghost-like figure. The Father is just a spirit as the Holy Spirit is. They are equal in their essence, but distinct in their personhood. But the Spirit is a person. And Jesus very clearly makes that distinction in a number of places. And so in John 16, verses 6 through 11, he says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Here, Jesus uses the personal pronoun for he, clearly ascribing personhood to the Spirit, and also speaks of him as the paraclete, the comforter, and very clearly says that he is going to be with the Father. Jesus is going to be with the Father and will then send the Spirit. Clear distinction of all three persons. But another thing to keep in mind are some of the personal aspects of the Spirit that show that he is a person. For example, in Ephesians 4.30, Paul warns us by saying, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. A thing cannot be grieved, but a he can. Romans 15.30, we also read, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Again, he is distinguished from the Lord Jesus. And we are told that the Holy Spirit loves. Right? That's something that only a person can do. And of course, one of the most Trinitarian passages in all of Scripture that clearly shows all three persons at once, and as different from one another, is the text of the baptism of our Lord. Matthew 3.16 and 17. <clears throat> uh, and we actually also see it in Mark, uh, in the first chapter of Mark and the third chapter of Luke. And the Gospel of John actually mentions part of it. But in Matthew we read, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Three clear, distinct persons, all at once. And so the Father is not the Son, and is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father, and is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and is not the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, and that is one of the three scriptural foundations for the doctrine of the Trinity. There are three distinct persons. But secondly, notice our second heading, unity in divinity. Unity in divinity. So the first foundation is that there are three distinct persons. The second foundation is that those three persons are each divine. They are each attributed throughout the scriptures characteristics which are only proper to God alone. And that is clear from our text this morning as we see that we are to baptize in the singular name. Right, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In this declaration... Our Lord is putting all three persons on the same and equal level. He is affirming that all three persons are 
co-equal. They are equal in the name. They are equally God. We know already that throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus, when speaking of God, or particularly when speaking to God, is speaking to the Father. The Father is divine. The Father is God. And now I don't think that I need to spend time giving you examples that show that the Scriptures speak of the Father as God. I think that is very plain and clear. I don't think anyone argues against that fact that I know of. So the Father is God. But what about Jesus? Well, I also think that the Scripture is crystal clear on His deity. Jesus is God. But that truth is one that is certainly and frequently attacked by many throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. That was the main issue at hand at the Council of Nicaea in 325. At the Council of Nicaea, Arianism was declared a heresy. That was the teaching that Jesus was a created being, that he was not co-eternal with the Father, that he was not God in and of himself. And with a few differences, that is what major groups today still teach, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. And so listen to this quote directly from the Jehovah's Witnesses website. Quote, Far from the Scripture's teaching that Jesus Christ is co-equal deity, a God equal to Jehovah God, they continually show that he is inferior to his Father. Close quote. And Mormons, likewise, believe that Jesus was a created being, in a sense, but created nonetheless. In their teachings, he was created by literal conception between the father and a spiritual mother. And this is before the incarnation, so we're not even talking about Mary here. This is a heavenly mo a mother that they teach. And heavenly father to them, by the way, was once a regular man who became exalted, lives in the celestial kingdom. And then he, along with a council of multiple other gods, created the universe. He then had relations with the Heavenly Mother who birthed spiritual beings who in the pre-mortal existence simply await for bodies. The first of these spiritual children was Jesus. And Satan is another who is equal to Jesus as his brother. Jesus is Satan's older brother according to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's official LDS teaching. That is official doctrine. And listen to a quote from their website, churchofjesuschrist.org. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. Just as we have a father in heaven, we have a mother in heaven. And... Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. Close quote. So, these kinds of heresies are very much alive today, which deny the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Even if we use the same names, the same terminology. And before you think that I'm being one-sided here in my disagreements of their doctrine, just know that their official teaching says the same thing about us. Right? Because we believe in the Trinity, among other things that they don't. This is what official LDS doctrine says about us. Quote, All their creeds, meaning yours and mine, are an abomination in the sight of the Lord. They, meaning we, are all corrupt. And they also say that we, quote, draw near to Jesus with our lips, but their hearts are far from him. They teach for doctrines the commandments of man, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 
And I just mentioned that to show you that they likewise have strong stances against us. Dogmatically. Even if some that you might personally know don't seem that way. And if that's the case, then it's simply out of inconsistency on their part. Because here's the reality. We absolutely cannot both be right. What we believe and what they believe, and the other groups that I mentioned earlier as well, are so contrary that we cannot both be right. We could both be wrong. But I believe that we are the ones who are firmly planted in the word of God. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so the question is, does the scripture teach that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father? That he is divine? And the answer is unequivocally, yes, it does. We see that in a number of ways. For example, he proclaims his own eternity. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. Quote, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because he was claiming equality with God. In their minds, he was utterly blaspheming. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, especially because of the way that he said it. I mean, not only is he saying that he existed before Abraham, who lived over a thousand years prior to Jesus, but this is also one of the powerful seven I am statements that Jesus proclaims. The usage of this language before Abraham was I am, not I was, took the listener to the very name of God. God had revealed himself to Israel as the I am. And if you can recall from our uh, looking at the eternality of God, that was one of the things that we looked at, the name of God being the I am, as in he never changes. He is not the I was or will be. God is. And so it is very clear. And that is the only way of reading this text that would make sense as to why people would pick up stones and be so angry and ready to commit murder. We already read a, po a portion of his priestly prayer in John 17. And in that same prayer, Jesus speaks of the glory that he had previously possessed with the Father. Equality with him before the world was. Now, to the Jew hearing that, uh, they would have known that God shares his glory with no one. The glory of God belongs to God alone, and so it was clear to them as well. Jesus, in sharing the glory with the Father, was glorious himself. And so Jesus is proclaiming his own co-eternity and co-existence with the Father. And that is exactly how the gospel according to John opens up in the prologue. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who else but God alone has the authority and ability to forgive sin, to raise the dead? And how else could you explain one of the most memorable confessions in Scripture? What does Thomas say to Jesus when he appears to him after his resurrection and Jesus tells Thomas to put his hand on his side and his finger in his hand? John twenty twenty eight. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 6, this is the Father speaking of Jesus, and he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
worship Jesus. And then the Father speaking directly to Jesus says in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He is also declared to be greater than the angels. He is given the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is called the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation. Before his birth, he was given the name of Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us. And along with that was prophesied to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I mean, that's that's not even an extensive overview of the evidence in the scripture to the reality that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. That Jesus is God, that he is divine. But those enough, is it not clear? It is very clear. Jesus is God. And the Father is God. There are some other important things that I want us to consider about the deity of Christ as it relates to the doctrine of the Trinity. But we are out of time this morning. And so we will continue next week with some concluding thoughts on the deity of Christ. Then we will consider the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then we will consider the third and final heading of this two-part message. So again, I think we have three clear foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. The first is that there are three distinct persons that make up the Godhead. So there is clear personhood of all three. And the second is that those three persons make up that make up the Godhead are divine. They are all attributed Godhood in the scriptures. We only had time to consider some aspects of the Father and the Son being attributed as such. And so next week we will also look at the divinity of the Holy Spirit, followed by the third foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity, which I will tell you about next week. So that will be next week, Lord willing. And as we close now, the only reason I don't like two-part messages is because I feel like I'm leaving you in the middle of a story. The thought process has laid out is not complete, so it is missing at least 50% at this point. But I do hope that you are encouraged somehow. If anything, with just that brief view of of the deity of our Lord. Beloved, if Jesus was not God incarnate, who was co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, then we are still in our sins. And we will stand before God to give an account for them. But I hope you were reminded and see this morning that the scriptures are so clear. The Apostle John bowed down and worshipped an angel. And the angel said to him, do not worship me. I'm merely a servant like you. And then tells him to worship God. Because God alone should be worshipped. And God himself tells us to worship his son. And when Jesus is worshipped, he does not rebuke. Because it is only proper. Because he is God. And therefore... If you are born again, you can have full confidence that your sins have been washed away as far as the east is from the west. That is why this doctrine is so important. Because the whole act of redemption stands or falls on this doctrine. And I hope that you can see that so far it is clearly standing.
Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. Father, that you made a plan and that your son came into this world and accomplished the redemption of his people. And that as he was raised and is now seated at your right hand, that he sent the Spirit to convict the world of sin, to work in each of our hearts, to bring about the completion of that work that Christ purchased. to regenerate hearts, to bring about new life. And so, Father, we thank you for those of us that have experienced that, that reality that we have been buried with Christ in baptism, that we were raised to walk in newness of life. Father, would you help us to love this doctrine and to see how vitally important it is and why we should be ready to stand in its defense. Because souls are at stake. So, Father, I pray for our Mormon neighbors and our Jehovah's Witness neighbors and our Oneness Pentecostal neighbors and any of them who deny this doctrine. Father, would you use us as tools? Would you grant us opportunities to show them the better way? leads to eternal life. Would we bring glory and honor to you in the things that we do? We thank you. We praise you and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. not walking off the stage. Well, we come now to our time of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, we read this, Paul writing, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Well, that is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It is a proclamation. It is a remembrance feast. It is not a unbloodied sacrifice. It is not a re-sacrificing. Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all. And we do this in remembrance of that. And so what else are we remembering? Matthew chapter 26. You may recall when our Lord goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When we pick up and drink this cup, these elements are mere representations. They do not become real blood, and the bread does not become real flesh. They are representations. They are to remind us as we pick up that cup of the cup that our Lord drank down to the dregs. The cup of the wrath of God that he took in our place. And the bread being his body, which he willingly sacrificed on our behalf. It is an act of remembrance. In 1 Corinthians 11 we read, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. We are to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And by that means that we must examine ourselves before we partake of this ordinance. Examine yourself to make sure that you are not living in a state of habitual, unrepented sin. Examine yourself right now as you sit here to see if you are in the faith. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. And so friends, if you are here visiting and you are not a believer, then this supper is not for you. And we say that out of love. Because it is dangerous. The scripture warns for anyone to take it in an unworthy manner. But we do invite you to consider where you stand with the Lord. Examine yourself. Repent and believe the gospel. And so if your conscience is telling you that you should not be taking of this supper, then you should listen to your conscience. Because not doing so would be sin and would be taking it in an unworthy manner. But if that is the case, please do come and speak to one of your pastors. We would be happy to discuss that with you. This act of the Lord's Supper is an act of remembrance. It is an act in which the Lord has communion with us in these Realities become a visible representation of what he has done for us. And in that, we also have communion with one another, with the body of Christ. And so it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. But it is one that we must take in a worthy manner. It is a serious matter, but it is a joyful matter. As baptism was, it is a beautiful thing to see newness of life. And it is a beautiful, empowering thing to remember the sacrifice that was done on our behalf. So before I invite you to come to the stations and partake of the elements, I would like us all to recite out loud the Apostles' Creed with me to remind you what we believe and why and what 
we profess as we partake of these elements. So read out loud with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And there's an asterisk there by the Holy Catholic Church, just a, as a reminder that that is old language, speaking of the universal church. We do not affirm the practices and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So with that, I invite you to examine yourselves and let us all come and partake the Lord's Supper together, affirming to one another, reminding one another of this work that Christ has done on our behalf.